I actually made a mistake, and I think the reason Kelly didn't make a final it's it's more because of my style of coaching. Because I've tried to bring my ideas about the coffee and my input and what I believe coffee is about, and I've tried to influence him with that, um, which of course didn't work. And uh, and coaching and mentoring, I've learned after that you know failure that we made, is it, it's about digging deeper in, in inside of other people and inside of the competitor, really trying to understand what they think, what their point of view is, what their why in coffee is, and help them to find their why and help them to sort of go as deep as they possibly can. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a world barista champion, Olympian, philanthropist, and remarkable entrepreneur. He immigrated to Australia in 1997 coming from humble beginnings in war-torn Bosnia. His outstanding sporting ability allowed him to represent Australia in European handball at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. While working in a Canberra bakery, he found his true passion and obsession for not only perfecting the ultimate cup of coffee, but also finding and roasting the world's best coffee beans. He has a heart of gold and his devotion to donate thousands of dollars to farmers who produce coffee beans in places like India, Honduras, and Nicaragua. His love of coffee has led to two Australian and the 2015 World Barista Championships. He owns a range of cafes, including the Copping Room, Owner Coffee House, Owner Monica, and High Road. I'm privileged to introduce you to a man who is considered inspiring, authentically raw and a fun entrepreneur to work with who authored the award-winning book the coffee man sasha sestic sasha welcome to the show thank you craig thank you for having me and thank you for a lovely introduction it's uh, it's humbling actually <laughs> to hear all of these things thank you it's well deserved and here we are today in the wholesale area of owner coffee and i'm really enjoying the tour that you've shown me and and the wonderful people that work here thank you Growing up in Bosnia following the breakup of Yugoslavia must have been challenging for your family. What was life like for you and your family during childhood? Yeah, it was it was tough, definitely. Like I come from a, my parents are mixed marriage. Uh, Dad is Orthodox, mum is Muslim. So um, and during the civil war, there was war between obviously these two two religions and as well as Catholics. So we, we lived in Croatia at the time when war started and, and both my parents felt that they were not, of course, welcome to stay there. And they moved back to Bosnia in sort of Serbian part of Bosnia. And because my mom is Muslim, my, my parents did not really think that they should stay there as well. So from Bosnia, we moved to, we moved to Serbia, so which was another war. Uh, and then when we moved to Serbia, there was a um, war with in, in Kosovo as well. Um, so within a period of six or seven years, uh, we've escaped three wars. Uh, so uh, my memories, I mean, a, as a kid, you, you sort of try to 
at that moment you just see positives that you don't need to go to school <laughs> during the war, so that's great, you know. But then uh, when when you when you realize that you know you live in the conditions that there's no electricity, maybe for you know five, six, seven months, and um, and people or mind is very very selling um, you know gold and ring and watches in order to sell a loaf of bread. Um, I, I guess my, my parents have done everything they possibly could that my brother and myself don't feel it as much as we you know we, we could or we should but I, I'm a positive guy so I, li I like to look at these fortunate situations and this, so to see what it you know help us to become who we are today and um, unfortunately we've gone through it but also it you know helped us to look at the world in, in sort of a lot different way uh, than what I would not if I did not go through these situations. So from adversity always comes opportunity. So you're, for your family, what sort of work would they do during that period of time? Oh, I remember my dad would, um, would go to neighboring countries, you know, Czechoslovakia back then, used to be called, <laughs> uh, and uh, just buy you know to toiletry soaps bits and pieces and, uh, and go to markets and sell them uh, winter in Serbia it, it gets maybe 15 minus 15 minus 20 degrees and uh, I do remember that he would go to the markets midnight 10 10 o'clock 9 o'clock night time and he would sleep on the markets in order to book a good spot for him so weekend markets he actually has a good spot so he can make some sales and you know have be able to support a family so uh, yeah, he's gone way and beyond to, to protect the family and protect all of us. So what attracted your family to move to Australia post the 1992-95 Bosnian War? Yeah, well, my, my parents wanted to, you know, they were 40 years old uh, when, you know, third war started in, in, uh, in Serbia. So they wanted to find a way to have better life, or secure better life for, most importantly for me and my brother. And they, they really started reaching out to different embassies and uh, looking for the solutions how we can escape that. And we've, because both my brother and myself, we, we loved handball, we played handball, European handball. Uh, my brother was uh, in, you know, signed for professional club, one of the highest rating clubs in Europe at the time. Uh, and I was in junior development squad together with him. So we, we were under the impression that this is what we're going to do for the rest of our life. Uh, and uh, you know our dream was to play at the World Championships and play Olympic Games so my pa our parents were considering that of course and they were looking for solutions where we can you know hopefully achieve that uh, and we had two options one was in Sweden which and handball is very high level in Sweden as well so we could hopefully play professionally there and other option was Australia which handball is not popular here but uh, we got in touch with the Olympic Committee uh, in, in Australia and knowing that uh, Sydney 2000 will be of course hosted in Australia and Australian committee wanted to have participation in every single sport or as many sports as possible so somehow we started talking and discussing and we, we of course loved the opportunity that we could you know possibly play Olympic Games mm -hmm. one day and, uh, and accepted to, to come here and immigrate to Australia. So pulling on that Australian jersey at the Olympics must have been a, a phenomenal experience for you. How would you describe living in the athletes' village and competing at that Sydney Olympic Games? 
Well, you know what? I, get? I have a goosebumps now when, you <laughs> when when I think of it. It's uh, it, it's one of the moments that will will be one of the best memories of my life and one of the proudest moments that you you know as an athlete. That's that's what dream is at least for majority of the athletes to to be at the Olympics. And uh, I remember going, especially with my brother, going on the opening ceremony, and and going outside and seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people cheering and and just looking around. I said, "Wow, you know, this is uh, it's priceless." So um, it it was a beautiful opportunity to to be and to play at that level. Um, we were both lucky enough to play world championships as well, two world championships, and. Uh, for, for me, it was uh, was overwhelming to be at the Olympics, but in, in the same time, I personally, I was only 21 years old, and uh, in the same time, I felt that I needed to prove myself, and I was so eager to be the best I possibly could be, because that was my draw card to go to Europe and continue playing professionally. Uh, but I... Six months before Olympic Games, I was voted as a best Australian handball player. <coughs> so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to play the first match and it's going to be great. I'll be in the first, you know, first seven. But for for whatever reason, coach did not put me in a team for the mm -hmm. in the first match of the Olympics. And being so young and maybe emotional, um, I started getting angry <laughs> at, at him, at myself, and I'm sure you would relate to to that. You know, playing playing high high-level sport but also not mature in the head as well um, so even though when he put me a second match in the first team because that was his tactic because we we, we had no high chances winning a first match mm. uh, but there was much not much communication and trust between me and coach uh, so even though when I played the second match I was so frustrated with everything that for me that was the end yeah um, and it took me a couple more matches to recover and I think the only very last match against Cuba is I played at sort of my level um, so even though handball was Olympics were amazing to see and be part of it, but for me personally, I, I feel that I could have yeah do better and I could have you know grow up on it. I definitely learned from the experience, uh, but may, maybe I, I think maybe it's not meant to be. Maybe coffee is meant to be because after 2000, I started considering other things. Uh, maybe you know enrolled in hospitality and and sort of started looking at the other options. What I can do with me. So what skills from being in a team environment at the pinnacle of the sport have helped you as both an entrepreneur and a world champion in a completely different discipline? Oh, it's, it's, it's been the best thing for me to actually play sport at that high level. Um, you know, we were discussing earlier, if we have a big match, uh, we, we gain or we, we train and we, we have a right discipline and right set of trainings to be perfect on that big match. Uh, definitely when I competed in World Barista Championships is, you know, I, I looked after myself to the level what I eat, what I put in my in my mouth, what time I go to bed. Um, even though I'm, I'm going on a stage to make coffees, all of these things behind the stage mattered a lot. Um, and also how to structure my six-month training, what do I need to do at, you know, early stages of trainings and when, then psychologically how do I prepare myself when I go on a stage, when I compete, and um, but I've actually applied that technique and discipline in, in a sport and, and hard work and, and a lot of hard training 
Uh, I've applied that not only in my competition, but in um, how we're running the company as well here. It's it's very competitive environment. It's very high paced. We we all high achievers. Yeah. Uh, we love competition, and and competition gets best out of us. And uh, so we we try to make all of these internal KPIs, and then maybe some of the whether it's sales techniques or how do we make coffee better in a, on a capping table. It's always done throughout the competition. Mm. So just before we move more into the coffee side of your career and your life, how did you cope with that transition from being an athlete to working to the working world? So you go from being in the highlight, you know, in the spotlight, you're you're at the top of the world or you know, you're right up there as an international athlete to going back into the working world where you're pretty much at the bottom again. Uh, that was hardest period of my life <laughs> if I can be if I can be honest uh, ma- making a decision not to play handball uh, I've retired when I was 24 and uh, there's there's a lot of different reasons I got married my wife was pregnant uh, with her beautiful daughter Anna and uh, and I've tried to to have a, that professional contract in a, in a certain club that was not successful so my mind started drifting that I, I need to do something else. I'm not good at this. And, um, but I've also said to myself, I will play another World Championships. And then uh, that's going to be my, my retirement championships. So I, I went to Portugal to play World Championships. I played a game of my life, scored, you know, out of 27 goals, scored 15 goals. Australia did not finish last, for the only time actually. We finished uh, number 17 out of 24 teams. Uh, which is still highest record and after the match I got this contract which is best contract I've, I possibly could hope for and best offer and um, it was expected like I'd, everyone would expect from me to say hey, finally I made it I can go you know to Europe and, and continue playing professionally but I actually said no to it it's yeah, brave and uh, I said no to it because deep inside of me I started falling in love with the hospitality and the coffee. Still working in a bakery and you know getting back then coffee was a uni job, as it is probably still for many people, so it was not ever considered as career. A lot of my friends were looking at me like, why do why do you go to school to learn how to clean tables and wait, you know, be be a waiter? <laughs> you know, and you turned out this offer like, what's what's wrong with you? And my parents supported me, of course, with, with all of the decisions I made, but surrounding out of my parents and my wife, of course, everyone was confused and they were doubting. And, and you can see when people give you feedback that they started doubting, like, you, you made a mistake. Um, and that made me think that, yeah, I actually probably made a mistake. And it, since, you know, 2003, which was my last World Championships, I have not watched Game of Handball for maybe 10 years because it was too difficult to sort mm. of go in front of the TV and say oh, what it could be. And I still struggle when I, <laughs> when I watch mm. it. Uh, and it, it took me three or four years to actually find myself back on a, that pure inside of myself, in my heart, well, this is what I love. And, uh, and handball was not as, that handball career, it's not, you know, I always thought this is unfinished job for me and I could have I could have been this, I could have do that. Uh, now, now I look at it that this was a great part of the journey. It helped me to be better in what I love doing more, which is coffee. 
And thanksfully to the handball, I, I guess we have reached certain success in the coffee today. So what was that defining moment for you when you found and kind of really fell in love with the art of coffee? Yeah, so uh, I've started coffee in, two, uh, in 2003, just after I retired from handball. And uh, I knew I liked the coffee, I had no reason why. And doing something without knowing you why, it's, it's difficult. Okay. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a lot of fog, but I, I liked coffee because there was, I liked interacting with the people. And uh, I always liked hospitality. So even though when I was playing handball, my goal was when I retire, when I, you know, we all have our dreams, right? When I retire, I'll, I'll have a coffee shop or pizza shop. Uh, I always loved hospitality. So um, that's, that's why I enrolled in hospitality in the CIT. And, uh, but really, at the beginning, out of everything I've, I've actually seen and done in hospitality, for me, coffee really captured myself. Uh, reason why is love talking to people. I always love creating something. Like I love cooking as well, but for me, cooking back in the kitchen and not being able to share that experience with the customers was, you know, there was that wall. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I saw the answers in a, in a coffee that I can make a coffee and I can actually see how people are interacting with that with that beverage and, and have a conversation with them. Uh, but it, it really took another four years or actually back in 2007 is when I realized that coffee can be so much more than just a social drink. Uh, it can be so much more than something can taste reasonably nice. Uh, it has a lot more depth and a lot deeper purpose to, you know, being able to serve great cup of coffee, which is, you know, throughout the cup of coffee, I had this analogy in my head and still do. We can make world a little bit better. Mm. Uh, we can, you know, give people that satisfaction from customer's perspective that they, they drink the coffee and they say, wow, this is the best coffee I've tasted. And I still live for these moments. And, uh, and even though we've, I've heard that a lot, and like a lot of people that work for the company, actually, they, they drank a cup of coffee and said, can coffee taste this good? Can I get a job with you? <laughs> and some of them work today here. But it's, so that, that side is very satisfactory, but what's even more satisfactory is to, to be able to work with the third world countries and, uh, and to work with them to help them to develop, you know, great coffee and to grow the amazing coffees and to see that you know, we, we're doing something good for, for these communities as well because we, you know, we'll talk later on about it, I guess, but, mm. you know, we can afford them better prices and better living. And that really gives me a full joy. You know, it's chasing perfection, but achieving something good within chasing that perfection. So talking a little bit around sort of making a difference in the world or, or providing a better world. So to own a coffee start in the back of a garage? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's... With that idea in mind and a big, big dreams, uh, I could afford to buy the cheapest coffee roaster in the world, in the market, uh, which was yeah, $10,000. And of course, could not afford commercial, commercial lease, so I've installed it in my garage at home. And um, that was interesting because we had our neighbors sort of, when we roast coffee, obviously there's a smoke. We could not afford to buy afterburner, so there's, there's a lot of smoke <laughs> in the neighborhood. So firstly, neighbors, neighbors will start jumping across the fence, they're thinking there's a fire. So what's going on? I said, I'm just roasting, it's okay. <laughs> there's some coffee, please don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, 
uh, to the point where we had an ambulance, uh, sorry, fire brigade just parking in the front because, you know, during the day there's smoke coming from the house and probably some other neighbors said, hey, someone maybe left, you know, oven or something on and there's a fire, so come over and then I'm just opening up the door, really busy roasting, <laughs> doing the bookkeeping and paperwork and, and cutting and tasting. So there, there were quite a few funny stories there. And uh, I think that lasted about 12 months up until... Uh, Health, ACT Health came on my door and said, like, <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, so uh, it's home roasting. I said, no, nah, <laughs> this is not home roasting. Uh, but yeah, then afterwards we, we sort of, uh, actually, no. After that, I, because I still could not afford the rent. Uh, so I decided that I'm going to go to Quimbian. Uh, it's a different, it's not ACT Health. It's, you know, different <laughs> internal law. Uh, and then uh, and then continue roasting day in uh, one of the Ustovich ads for uh, for a few months up until we we could sort of afford to to find a commercial lease. What a great start to the story! So you're you're all about high quality and sustainability. So what are the I suppose the DNA? What what are the real key factors to why Owner Coffee brand has become one of the leaders in the industry? I, I think I can put it simply in. Uh, in few words, uh, we we very community-driven company. Uh, it's it's a family-owned company. My Betty is next door, and you know she does she does book bookkeeping and administration in in, in the wholesale. Uh, and uh, and I, I think these are the really uh, values. Like all of the leaders in Honor Coffee and like Australian champions, and the world roasting champions. None of them actually understood coffee on a high level when Anna started. So we started with the idea, with the crazy passion, obsession for, for coffee, uh, and uh, also people that willing to make a difference, people that willing to make something unbelievable, uh, which, you know, some of us are driven by someone's, you know, Sam, a roaster wants to be the best possible roaster he can, and the other people want to be work very sustainably with the farms and third people want to extract the best possible coffee they can. So somehow I managed to bring this group of people that just have this crazy desire and um, and the respect for each other. I think that that's what's kept us strong. It's it's our team. Uh, people see our success, but uh, we all know what we've gone through for, you know, nine or seven, eight years before we reached that success and a lot of failures. But what was key is every time when we fail, it helps us to bring us closer. Um, and I think that really shows a you know, real team and determination to sort of support each other. And even though when one of the team members does poorly uh, and then someone does very well, we all go to the member that has not done as well to sort of help to cheer him up and, and her or her as well uh, to be the best they can be. So that, that's, I think, one of our really key values that as we now we've gone bigger and you know we have over 150 people employed something that um, i love to use a lot of my time to make sure that we don't ever lose these values and they are stronger and stronger and stronger another value is that we we're very innovative and what's probably helped us a lot that we are a little bit isolated from big melbourne you know specialty coffee melbourne is considered as the best specialty coffee in the world uh, city or, or Sydney, or all, all of the other cities. So we, we just had this bunch of people that you know love coffee, they're obsessed with the coffee, and they wanna they wanna innovate, they wanna do new things. So we were not really ever influenced by what really happens in the other companies. 
uh, we, we had the idea of what coffee should taste like and how it can be and we worked together really hard together and um, and I think that's that innovation is sort of continuous happening we're not ever happy with what we mm. what we do which kind of leads it to third main point which is chasing excellence um, we do we are very high achievers and we we always set ourselves a higher goals and higher higher bars year by year, month by month. <coughs> One of the issues we have is that we we set these high goals, but then when we reach them, we don't spend enough time celebrating. We just try to very set another another higher goal, uh, and it's it's our energy to love what we do is trying to be the best we can be, and not necessarily competing against other people, even though we are very competitive. <laughs> Uh, but we, we want to compete against ourselves. Like we want to sort of be better in six months than what we are today. Uh, so that, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so talking about the innovation, what, you know, obviously when you won the 2015 World Barista Championships, what gave you that kind of inside edge over your competitors in there that ensured that you won that championship? Yeah, well, a lot of things, but maybe two two main ones, if I can uh, speak, is uh, we have innovated a coffee process um, that is today uh, very popular in, in the world. It's called carbonic maceration. So uh, we, we have all of, when we innovate, we, we don't necessarily innovate for the reason so we can get the credits. Are we a very innovative company and what's next coming from and we usually like to look at what the problem is. Whether it's the problem with the green beans or half coffee is processed or dried or roasted. And then we, we go really deep in the in that issue. And I traveling throughout the world, you know, working with so many farmers and tasting so many coffees, I've I've realized that there's a problem how coffees are processed these days. Um, and uh, and I started looking out the answers outside of coffee industry so i started collaborating with uh with winemakers uh, with tim kirk uh, from conicilla and really understanding what they're doing in the more established industry which is similar to coffee in wine to see how they are processing and fermenting their their region and what sort of controls they have and I, I was fascinated and like i felt and all of us felt like we kids in the lolly shop said so there's so much more we can learn there's so many new new opportunities and really applying these techniques and, and testing and experimenting these techniques how we can process coffee better. Um, I'm, I'm sort of happy and privileged to see like with this last World Barista Championships, uh, last World Barista Championship which was in Boston, out of six competitors in the finals they used our innovative process. Yeah. Uh, so it's already taken on the world and I, I guess another innovation that we have um, brought up to the world in 2015 is uh, OCD, coffee distribution tool, which you can see plenty of them up there on the display. <laughs> uh, so it's something we have been working on, or we have in, in, a, in a company since 2012, and it took us three years to make this distributing tool, which helps to give more even extraction um, in, in every cup of coffee. When we serve coffee in the competition, we need to serve four same espressos. Even though it sounds simple, it's actually very complex mm -hmm. and very difficult. Uh, and we were looking for the techniques how we can achieve that consistency and, and one of the new innovations we brought was a distributing tool. So with, mm -hmm. you know, now you spend a lot of time 
teaching, coaching, mentoring baristas, and, and many of them are working here and on a coffee, to define and master that you know real craft there. So how would you define your coaching style and what makes it so enjoyable for you? Yeah, uh, I think before any, any success, there's a, there's a failure, right? Uh, just like it was a journey with competing for, for seven years before we reached the success. Um, 2016 is when I coached Hugh Kelly. Um, who won Australian barista competition and then together we thought we're gonna go for another world title it's gonna be easy you know I, I won it Kelly has been competing for so many years he's very experienced but I, I actually made a mistake and I think the reason Kelly didn't make a final it's it's more because of my style of coaching because I've tried to bring my ideas about the coffee and my input and what I believe coffee is about and I've tried to influence him with that um, which of course didn't work and, uh, and coaching and mentoring, I've learned after that, you know, failure that we made, is it, it's about digging deeper in, in inside of other people and inside of the competitor, really trying to understand what they think, what their point of view is, what their why in coffee is, and help them to find their why and help them to sort of go as deep as they possibly can. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, it's been very enjoyable doing it and, and these days for me like most satisfactory things is to see other people succeed succeed and other people becoming these great leaders and, uh, and achieving their goals uh, but um, it's about them and I always say it, it's if they fail I actually f it's me that failed not them and if they succeed it's it's their success and uh, and, and keeping that sort of philosophy and and if something goes wrong we are on a stage with a competitor some it's not quite right i always look at what could i do better uh, but in the same time not to give them my idea my way of thinking help them to sort of realize it themselves the internal motivation yep. is so crucial i can see that you're really obsessed with finding the most purest and authentic coffee beans available in the world so why did you decide to kind of redefine the coffee ecosystem and focus on developing and investing in coffee farms yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it started with my very first visit when I went to India. Um, that was 2011, which means Ona Coffee was already three years old. And uh, and we, I, I looked at it from the perspective here. We we have a business that was accepted by people in Canberra. Um, we were roasting coffee. We had a really nice small team, maybe six seven staff back then but very very passionate and loving every moment of what we're doing and in return you know we we had we could you know have a roof above us have decent food have car support our kids to go to school etc so we, we could have a normal life but then when i went to the india which is um 40 percent of our biggest blend that we have uh in which is called hitman things were different for, for them because this, these people were surviving and they hardly surviving. They, they work on a salary that's $3.50, $3 uh, no, no sanitary systems, no toilets, no shower, no water, no electricity. Um, even um, ladies, when they, when they go and pick the coffees, they, they had little kids, you know, six months old, one year old, two years old. They, they put them next to the forest because coffee in India has grown in a lot of deep shade. So they, they put them next to these big canopy trees to sort of sit and, uh, 
and they can turn around and sometimes there was the case that kids are gone you know they have a leopard they have a lot of wild animals there snakes and that really shocked me mm. that that shocked me that i actually felt guilty that i can't buy coffee from them with the sea market prices that you know are really cheap and yeah we, we make bigger margins in australia but it's it's not really about that and i just could not accept um paying low, low amount for the coffees. I could not accept not doing anything more than just paying okay prices as well. Like I, I felt that felt responsible that I need to do more because we have access, success on um, thankfully to these people growing coffees. And you know, when you plant the coffee tree, it takes four years to get a first fruit. And as the barista and the roaster, you know, it takes you 10, 15 minutes to roast the coffee and to, to reach the success. So these people are risking a lot. Uh, and they're waiting for four years to pick the first fruit and then when they pick the first fruit they're completely underappreciated um, and this gave me the idea when I came back that we actually need to do a lot more than just go to the farm and buy buy coffees and buy delicious coffees it's easy uh, it's easy to go on a farm and pick coffees that you like and the coffees that you don't like you can reject but that makes me think what happens when I reject these lots to these people and this story just continues going for them. You know, they might, one year they might sell for reasonable price. Following year, if no one buys the coffee, they sell it for C market prices, which is way below cost. Mm. Um, so we, we came up with this program that we call Project Origin, which is famous now. At least it's famous in the coffee world by mm. coffee professionals, uh, where we can pay above premium prices, where we can invest in, in our, our know-how so we can teach them how they can actually achieve a great quality. Uh, and we, we can do certain projects for, for people, sustainable and so, social projects, whether we, we build a childcare center like we did for India or sanitary systems and, and many other projects that we, we've started doing around the world and, and yeah, proudly uh, we, we continue doing them. See, Project Origin is making a massive difference in these communities. And so they, you know, coffee's only grown in certain countries. So what is you know, what are the environmental conditions that are required for that coffee to really grow and prosper? So yeah, well, for coffee to be exceptional, uh, we they need to grow in the tropics. We, we call it coffee belt. Um, closer to equator, uh, the coffee is grown where temperatures are warmer. That's that's what's more more desirable. Uh, altitude is also required that uh, coffee grows at a really high altitude and the higher it's grown the better generally it's going to taste and um, and the so it's, it's a microclimate microclimate that's that's really important also soil is, uh, is really important what sort of soil do we have uh, old volcanic soil is great but if volcano erupted you know in last hundred years then of course it's not going to be desirable because there's not much energy and nutrients in the soil um, it's it's very fragile, especially with these uh, climate changes and uh, global warming. Uh, coffee is more susceptible for to receive uh, leaf rust and funguses and different diseases. So it's getting harder and harder to grow coffee. Uh, that's for sure, and it's getting more and more expensive as well. Uh, so um, there, there's a lot of research centers that are trying to battle this this fight by coming up with different varietals, uh, with different mutations, uh, different hybrids as well, in order to, to survive. And um, 
we, we have invested a lot ourselves where we I was in Ethiopia last year and I went to deep forest where coffee is originated uh, so not many people go there it, it's actually adventure together uh, and we we've seen some of the coffee trees uh, in Mankira forest and these trees are four five six hundred years old and uh, and there's a lot of varietals that um, have not been discovered yet and because Coffee has a very narrow DNA, uh, all of the coffee varietals. So 95% of DNA of every single varietal that we have today is pretty much the same. Mm. So our goal was to go to this forest to look for some of the different species of the coffee and different varietals that have very different DNA. And we can plant them in our farms and then uh, hopefully we can see three or four years um, and test them to see you know, how different this DNA is and whether we can possibly come up with some different new mutations to make it a little bit easier. Mm. But it's definitely getting harder and harder to grow coffee. So you authored the book, The Coffee Man, which kind of supports a number of the initiatives around the project origin. Uh, and you now produced a documentary film around it. So can you explain a little bit around what The Coffee Man is all about and why did you decide to focus on this purpose? Sure. Well, uh, everything started with a movie, the, the Coffee Man movie. <laughs> and the, the story started not, movie was not ever supposed to be about me. <laughs> Originally, uh, before I competed, about in 2014, I had two very talented movie makers from Melbourne, Jeff Hahn and uh, Roland. And they, they asked me if they can follow me to see my work, what I do with the farms. Uh, and they can share some of the some of the footage behind the clothes of what actually happens on the farms, how coffee is grown, and, and share about the cultures, and etc. And of course, I was very happy to do it. And I, I said to them clearly, I, I don't want this to be about me. I'll host it, but I'd love you to spend a lot of time interacting with these people because we, we need to hear their stories, not, not necessarily my story. Uh, so that's how we started. So we visited a couple countries, and uh, they had, I don't really think they had the end goal how this is going to look like but um, the brief was introduce consuming countries with the, with the farming countries and sort of bring that gap a little bit closer. Then I told them that six months later, uh, actually about six months later I told them that I have a barista competition so I won't be traveling much. And they said barista competition, what's that? They, they had no idea what it was. So I said well we, we prepare coffees, you know we may need to make for espressos, for meal based coffees, for signature drinks, in 15 minutes we have a presentations and then uh, if I win regional I go to Australia and if I win Australian I, I, maybe I can go to the walls. I've been doing it for seven years, I haven't won it yet but I think this is my year. I said okay. So they said we're going to record you, you know you, you're doing your regional. I said that's fine. So they recorded me winning regional, then they went to Melbourne, they recorded this, you know, my campaign for winning Australian barista comp. And then they both said, well, we want to go with you to Seattle to follow you in the world competition. Um, and, you know, if anyone has watched the movie, it was, it was very theatrical in Seattle because I got really sick. I ended up in a hospital, 40 degrees temperature and all of that. And um, so I ended up winning world barista championships. So as we were flying back, Jeff Roland said, ah, you know what, we're going to make a movie about you. I said, okay, that's not what we agreed. <laughs> uh, and, um, and obviously that's how the movie came up. So it was very spontaneous. Mm. Uh, and I think that story really inspired a lot of people, a lot of baristas, and, and sort of they've seen the true values of, uh, you know, of my wife for the coffee and what we've done together. 
and the Jeanette from Smudge Publishing was talking to me. She said, Sash, I think you should write a book about your story. It's fascinating with the stuff with Bosnia and everything and and the work you do with the producers, all of the projects. So that's that was the idea that we, we also should write the Coffee Man book. Um, so and but I wanted to make book um, I wanted to make it more communal that we can sort of give back to the community. So we, we've made a Kickstarter campaign with a book where we raised over $80,000 for book to be published. And uh, we made 5,000 copies of it. So that covered sort of in entire production of the book and publication. And uh, so far we sold 4,000 books and uh, and it's 100% non-profit. So all the sales we, we give to coffee communities. And it's been great. So, uh, and it's actually been really nice to receive a lot of feedback from a lot of baristas and competitors. They say, oh, I've read your book, I want to compete again, or I read your book and I have this idea about the processing of fermentation. Uh, now, since then, I've been in touch with so many different producers and uh, sharing advice and tips and, and networking and making your friendships, how to make coffee better. So, it's, I, I, I believe it has made small impact in our specialty coffee world in a, in a positive way. What a great initiative. So on a, um, on a coffee, cafes are now expanding their reach sort of beyond the Canberra borders and venturing to the rest of the world. So can you enlighten us on the future expansion of On A Coffee? Yeah, I have this philosophy in Anna Coffee that we're going to keep growing as long as our values, our message and our quality can continue growing. And, uh, and quite a few people in the company were a little bit concerned because when you, when you scale up, when you make things a little bit bigger, then it usually becomes more commercial. Um, decisions have they made. But I, I kind of think completely opposite. I think if we grow to the certain level, we can actually use our vision on coffee, our, our status, our view on coffee to help influence others, if we can serve as an example. Uh, and having that in mind, we yeah, decided to grow interstate. So we have a Sydney distribution now and, uh, and a coffee shop in Sydney. We are starting Melbourne, signed the lease last week, which is very exciting. So we'll be opening on a headquarters in Melbourne as well. And uh, we'll be starting uh, in Dubai this year also uh, with, with on a coffee. And, um, and last year we've started our production in uh, China with the Project Origin coffees. So it sounds a lot and it sounds big, but uh, at the moment it's a great idea, re really good small team. We want to make sure we do it slow and we do it properly and we do it with a true to our values. And every new growth can sort of um, help to make even a big impact in what we're trying to do. Uh, so it, it's pretty exciting. It's a bit scary as well because <laughs> all of these new things that means a new structure, new business, new management, new policies, and uh, that that's something that yeah I'm not big fan of doing <laughs> and not very good at as well. Uh, but luckily we have a great team of people that can sort of uh, continue supporting that part of the business and they can keep up with my silly ideas. And, uh, <laughs> so we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Uh, two, a month ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I love that question, actually. And it makes us think a lot. It's, it's a yeah, great question, Craig. Uh, I think it's important that we, we continue doing something for the first time. 
and whatever it is. Um, I, I found myself, especially in last, you know, after competing and then coaching and learning how to be the best coach and then understanding how to run the business, you know, <laughs> never been a CEO and never had, had to deal with so many different people. So there was always every new growth was a new challenge and it's a new, new understanding. Uh, to tell you honestly, 12 months ago, I did not know what CFO is. And, and when I was talking to one of the employees, I said, Sasha, you need CFO. I said, what is CFO? Uh, now we have CFO. <laughs> uh, but uh, so a lo lot, of, lot of learnings, but um, I always need to, I feel hungry that I need to learn something new. So I flew to Switzerland uh, last month to understand a little bit more about the science of coffee. So I spent quite a few days with um, scientists and understanding all of the different volatile compounds when we extract coffee, uh, all the different acids, and, uh, and really understanding science and understanding basic of science so I can connect that with my coffee knowledge and, uh, and hopefully um, out of that come up with something new and then come up with some maybe some new way of thinking, deeper way of thinking that I can continuously make in coffee better. Uh, I'm, I'm very obsessed with the coffee, so even though a lot of people would need to do something different outside of their work, so they can sort of um, relax and maybe um, have a bit of um, have a bit of time to sort of um, not to worry about what they do. For me personally, like I, I love my family, I have two beautiful kids, and on the weekends I love spending time with them. But then when I need to do something new, it's always coffee. Um, and um, and it's it's been giving me energy to sort of keep digging deeper as much as I possibly could in a coffee. So you're very curious. So what is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, one question that I would love to solve, or one thing that I would love to solve. Uh, I, I'd love to. Yeah, it always comes on my mind. So it's it must be this. Uh, <laughs> See, the way coffees are sold these days, uh, and actually has been all, all, everywhere, it's coffee is sold as a commodity. And uh, the way coffee prices are set, um, it's New York Coffee Exchange prices. So prices are set by um, hedge funds, speculators, and, uh, and sort of people that are brokers. Uh, and they it and it's set by supply and demand so it's not necessarily set by uh, and people that controlling the prices they don't actually buy coffee they're just buying the future of the coffee and they sell the future when they believe it's it's best for them to sell so they can make make a profits um, and that's 90 percent of the half coffee functions have coffee sold and purchased i'd love that not to exist because we have uh, 25 million small farmers in the world that are growing coffees that we drink every day. And, uh, and that's 80% of the, of the coffee it's actually grown with the small farmers, 10 to 50 bags what they, they produce. And they have no impact what they're gonna charge for their, for their product. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of sad that they keep growing that coffee and then and some years they're gonna sell it for profit, some years gonna sell it for, for break even, some years gonna, they're gonna sell it for loss. 
Um, so I guess maybe one day when I retire, for me what would be success is that we, we just don't work coffee like that. Yeah. And we can award people for the quality when they deliver quality and, uh, and not really being directed by, the, by third parties uh, how much coffee should be sold and purchased. So that's the one. <laughs> and how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? Okay. When I have a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't function when I need to work only on one project. And, uh, and I also don't think I function well when I make decisions only with my head, with my brain. It needs to be connected with my values. And, uh, and they need to be driven more by my by values as well when I, when I, make, that, when I make that decision. Um, I'm in peak state of mind when I when I travel a lot as well. Um, so e even though when I travel overseas, I travel for coffee, but I think changing environment, not not being in my everyday comf comfort environment, is when I yeah when I get best out of myself. Uh, I don't like closing myself in a in normal offices and all my boxes you can <laughs> you can see my office now it's, it's just a lounge random couch <laughs> and a tv uh and uh, I, I like to be in in that sort of as creative environment as i possibly can also to do like we no, no matter how much we love a job there's so many things that we don't like doing uh, but as long as when I wake up on, on Monday and when I finish my work on, on Friday and majority of the week I enjoyed and, uh, and like 51% I call it <laughs> is what I love doing and then 49% is something that we need to do that keeps me in a good state of mind. If I need to do things that I don't really enjoy that um, I, I, I'm on function as well. So that's kind of my personal fire that I have that I keep as we grow I keep putting myself in these positions that I do what I love doing most of the time. So you have a phenomenal story and some really valuable insights there. So if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, it depends. Like so sometimes we have a farmers, they say, oh, I'd love to learn about your processing, about fermentation. I usually tell them, just please buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because there's so many insights there, and then there's so many po possibly a uh, lo lo lot of valuable things to sort of that I share ideas in, in a lot of depth and why. Uh, so I think book is useful if people can connect with the similar values, mm. uh, no, no matter what job they do, right? But uh, I, I I'm pretty approachable and pretty active, and I, I like to respond. Uh, sometimes when I am asked coaching tips. On Instagram, it's sort of it's, it's hard to respond with that. So how do I make coffee better? Like I can't respond <laughs> on Instagram mm. because I, I don't see it. But when, when it comes down to a lot of whys and, and 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 values, and when people sort of have a similar situations like myself, and and if they reach up to me, I'd, I'd like to sort of be as helpful as I possibly can. So um, yeah, po possibly Instagram. <laughs> So Sasha, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Your journey from a very humble beginning and you know coming to Australia opened your opportunities for you. So as we said, you know, from adversity creates opportunity. Uh, you were successful 
as a handball player, you went to the Olympics, you had an amazing experience there where not everything went right. So yeah. you, were, you, had some, you were learning as you were going through that two-week period of Olympics. And you know you finished on a high, and you you went out, and it's very brave of you to be able to step away from something you've done for such a long time, when you have a big offer on the table, and just go, you know what, it's not quite connected to my values and my heart anymore. Even though I'm there's unfinished business here, it's not quite connected. Yeah. To find that passion in coffee, and to really throw yourself right into the deep end of it, um, and learn the art of it, and now trying to figure out the science of it, and really create that art of it is is fantastic and i've loved hearing your story about that you when i talked to some of your staff at some of your your cafes um, before coming here the things keep shining through that you're very open you're very raw you're very authentic you have a lot of fun and that has really shone through today um, i really appreciate your time and i look forward to seeing the the global expansion of the on a coffee and seeing project origin continue to to really make a difference deep down into people that are the forgotten world in many industries. You know, the people that are actually growing and producing and harvesting the, the, the finer ingredients that really are crucial to the end product. Um, so I congratulate you on that and thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. And yeah, thank you for summarizing it so nicely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. On this week's Active CEO Wellness Tip, talking talent is not enough. Discipline, hard work, and really putting that time into achieving your goals is so important. Talent will only take you so far. What is your plan you are putting into place and implementing to ensure you achieve that the performance that you are desiring? What is gonna take you to that next level? You have to continually be curious, innovative, and pushing beyond your current comfort zones if you want to step up to that next level because talent is only your your first floor so what's on the second third and fourth floors you need to unlock what that is that you need to do to keep working hard keep making sure that you're extending yourself and taking yourself to a whole nother level Thank you for listening to an engaging and powerful conversation with Sasha Sestic, a world beyond coffee on the Active CEO podcast. Quite often CEOs and leaders find themselves at a point where they lack the motivation or inspiration to take their performance and or company to the very next level. This is the moment where you are caught up in your own internal world and are unable to see what you are doing from an external bird's eye view perspective. CEOs and leaders quite often are left feeling stranded and alone at the top. No matter what experience or expertise you have, it is important to have either a coach, mentor, or team where you receive honest and valuable feedback that stimulates your growth and curiosity. Energy to Perform brings 25 years of experience coaching and mentoring people to see both the bigger picture and narrowed down into what needs your attention now so you can improve your performance. Learn more about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com website. That's 
w dot n r g two perform dot com. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.